Oh, newspapermen meet such interesting people. They know the lowdown, now it can be told. I'll tell you quite reliably off the record about some charming people I have known. For I meet politicians and grafters by the score. Killers plain and fancy, it's really quite a bore. Oh, newspapermen meet such interesting people. They wallow in corruption, crime and gore. Ting-a-ling-ling, city desk. Pull the press, pull the press. Extra, extra, read all about it. It's a mess meets the test. Oh, newspapermen meet such interesting people. It's wonderful to represent the press. Now you remember Mrs. Sadie Smuggery. She wanted money to buy a new fur coat. To get insurance, she employed... The Media Project gives you a half hour of commentary and analysis from some veteran journalists looking back at things from our perspective of uh, <coughs> experience, I say. Age, you might say. I'm Rex Smith here with Judy Patrick and Rosemary Armeo. We do not have Alan Shartok today. I don't know if we can go on. I know. Do you think... I think we can. <laughs> <laughs> okay, then we shall. We're going to talk about my home state of South Dakota, by the way. But first, last week, Alan was insistent that there was lying going on in the media. And in his absence, I have to talk about a remarkable report indicating that some local TV stations have been pushing forward with a story narrative that seems not to be true. And that is police officers overdosing from fentanyl exposures, which apparently medically makes no sense that officers who respond to a scene where there's been an overdose from fentanyl themselves are overdosing. And this seems to have been picked up from a Fox News story and then repeated on other Fox affiliates around the country and seems not to be true. I guess the point is this is the kind of inaccuracy that does in fact happen sometimes in journalism, right? Yeah, people believe that students are using cat boxes instead of bathrooms in schools. Where does that stuff come from? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think in this case, the reporter was relying either the emergency medical technicians or the police officers who were responding think that this is what is happening, and it, it's a rumor that's amplifying itself. I've seen it on social media many times, and then there's this debate that this is not true, this does not happen, but it's feeding the fears among EMT people or people who respond to drug overdoses that there is this danger with it. It always reminds me of the people who were so worried to respond to AIDS patients back in the early days of the AIDS epidemic. And it's not true. The problem with the local Fox station for not checking, for not getting a medical opinion or a medical input on the story they wrote. You know, if you've ever covered cops, you know that you can't take at face value the instant reaction of a police officer on the scene. They don't have the breadth of experience. They haven't yet done the background check. You can get a good quote from a cop casually telling you what's going on, but it may not be accurate in the end. That's not to denigrate the police. It's just saying that there's a level of expertise of a cop responding on a scene that you don't find when someone actually does a scientific analysis. And this is something young reporters don't know. Someone new to the job thinks, oh, a police officer said it, it must be true. It takes an editor explaining that that's not always the case, and experience. So we may be experienced, as we say here on the panel, but that's what we bring to the table, the knowledge that you need to check what a cop says. That sort of thing is happening less, however, because reporters aren't working side by side with their editors or with veteran reporters because of the change in the dynamic that began with the COVID shutdown. And now a lot of newsrooms, well, a lot of newspapers don't have newsrooms. 
or a lot of the work is done from home. Or from a McDonald's or a Starbucks. Right. Back in the day, when we first got rid of the bureaus, people were filing from McDonald's, which always had a really good Wi-Fi access. <laughs> it's also... They're all over, too. Yeah, that's true. That's a good thing. But there is also a trend of major news organizations hiring inexperienced young reporters, people who are willing to take the low pay that remains the case because so many news organizations are financially challenged. And so there is a lack of expertise, a lack of experience on the part of the journalists who are actually covering stuff that we used to have. And because the people going into journalism now know there's no job security and very little money, we're getting a lower grade of student than we ever did. So it's not Mm. only lack of experience, it's lack of capacity of talent. And that goes for the editors, too, who used to be and have always been the standard bearers in newsrooms, the ones who say, no, no, that's not right, or hey, did you ask this question? It's not just that they're not in the same room together. It's that even when they exist, they have very little experience themselves. It's not to say that young people can't do it. There's a 30-year-old writer for the New York Magazine. I read everything she writes. It's fabulous. She's immensely talented. But at 30, to be a magazine writer at the New York Times, that did not happen in the day. Mm-hmm. This is not a sign of new opportunity for young people. It's a sign of there's nobody else. We'll get the cheapest one we can. And if we get one that's talented, wow, aren't we lucky? Yeah, for a few years mm-hmm. <laughs> until she moves until on. Until she, she realizes it's not the field to stay in. Is there a solution to this? We can recognize that there is a lack of experience in the field. The pay is inadequate to keep people who are ambitious and starting. And we have so many news outlets closing down. I was going to mention my home state of South Dakota, where there are 66 counties Half of them have a single weekly. Seven counties in South Dakota have no newspapers at all. And this do, is... do all those counties have people in them? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's a good question. There are more cattle than people. But the news deserts are now widespread, and I presume there's, there are many in New York as well, aren't there? No. In New York, there are maybe one or two counties with not a home-focused newspaper, but all the other counties have a paper, a weekly. Some of, Many of them have dailies, but most of them at least have one weekly. Many of them have two or three. But a weekly that serves the county seat may not necessarily serve, of course, the smaller communities on the edge. And all of them are paying their reporters to this point. They're paying them next to nothing. Yeah, when you think about my county, Washington County, New York State here, there are 19 towns. And who can cover 19 town governments? Even back in our heyday, I don't know if every town got that kind of coverage. So we need to find a solution for this. I mean, citizen journalism, we know it can be problematic, but it may be at least something to give us going forward. I can't see profit-motivated journalism making any headway in those areas. Right. Not-for-profit journalism could be, here's an example. When I became the editor of the Troy paper in 1991, we had about 20 correspondents. That is, people we paid for individual stories, maybe $25 per town board meeting or something, which is not much money for that work. But people were willing to do it because they were interested in the work itself. And some of them were young people who wanted to be journalists. Some of them were middle-aged people who had this interesting sidelight. They would write this for the local newspaper. But it was a countywide paper. Actually, at that time, it was a little bit regional. And it had all these people who were almost citizen journalists. That model, even, is now lost because those regional papers, the mid-sized papers, as Troy was in those days, 
have disappeared or shrunk to virtually no staff. They can't even pay 25 bucks to somebody to cover a town board meeting. That's why these solutions that we're seeing in Congress have some value, tax breaks for conversion to not-for-profit or support for a negotiation with the digital giants so that there can be some sort of financial compensation to produce revenue that could support that kind of journalism. But that doesn't seem to have political wings under it. In New York State, some of the weeklies or smaller papers are talking about reviving this correspondent approach to news with a emphasis on some training that goes with it. So you don't just send someone in there to cover a town board that knows nothing about town government or knows nothing about journalistic ethics. And one of the reasons they're doing that is they're having a hard time hiring people because there are opportunities out there for new grads from J school and they're going to the bigger outlets because they're finding they're going to digital entities and they're just not interested in starting out at a small weekly and working their way up. And the problem is this is where the core of American democracy is. The way that our government is set up, rural areas actually have greater clout than a lot of the urban areas. I mentioned my home state of South Dakota. You know, there are only 895,000 people in and the state. And it has two senators. Two I senators hear. and a member of Congress. Yeah. And, and so one on. member of Congress. And one member now. It used to be two when I was a kid. But it gives each of the 600,000 voters in South Dakota 28 times more power in the U.S. Senate than the 17 million voters in Texas. A voter in South Dakota, that is, has 28 times more power than does a voter in Texas because of that imbalance that is constitutional in America. So that's why the loss of newspapers in places like South Dakota and Nebraska and Montana, why that's important, because these people are the ones who actually have outsized influence in American politics. I was a judge for the Nebraska Press Association newspaper contest last year, and they do have newspapers there, and they are doing interesting work, but it was a reciprocal arrangement, and they judged the New York contest. And I remember reading some of the comments from the judges out there who were amazed at the diversity that we had and how open our government was here. So we're getting that kind of feedback from those journalists there. It was really interesting to see. Actually, one of the good things about chain newspaper ownership, and I can't believe I'm saying this, having been the victim of that bad chain that owned the Troy paper, but one of the good things is that in Nebraska, for example, one group will own a number of papers. And so you get great reporting from the Lincoln Journal Star, for example, appearing in the paper in Kearney, Kansas, or out in Scotts Bluff in western Nebraska. And so this is Well, a, you know you're Nebraska. I do. <laughs> I don't even know the capital. That's Lincoln. I've I've spent too much time driving across the ice-covered prairies of Nebraska, yes. How is that a good thing? uh, (laughs) How is that a good thing that the chain puts news from one paper to an irrelevant? They're statewide stuff. It's the stuff that is the investigative stuff that they can do. They can somewhat afford to do in Lincoln. You know, it's not great, but it's better than nada. You know, it would be better if Scott's Bluff could afford its own core of reporters. But I'm afraid that unless there is some solution imposed by federal tax law, we're not going to get that All that would do, the federal tax law change, or however we came up with the money, the funds to reinvest and reinvigorate local news, is create papers and outlets that people are not reading or listening to anymore. That's the real problem. It's news going out of fashion, not just our inability to collect that news. And I think the George Santos case is an example of that. Uh We know everything about him now, and so what's going to happen? Nothing. He's going to go represent or misrepresent, as it probably will turn out to be, that district. And Um, is there a solution to that to get people more 
I turned on to the news again. Well, I think we have to go back to education and media literacy because people are not reading or looking for news. They're not missing it. They are not on the radio every week bemoaning the loss of newspapers and the end of democracy. They think it's irrelevant. So how do you change that? It's interesting how fascinated people are by the George Santos story. It's All incredible. We, it, well, can he be elected? To, what can happen to him? Isn't this illegal? I heard this discussion for the last you know seven days. And so now everyone's interested in what their congressperson might have lied about. So I think this is a short-lived phenomenon, though. I don't think people are that interested in <laughs> People are not going to keep <laughs> insisting on credibility from it's politicians. Background so. checks for us. They've for stopped everything. insisting on credibility. Yeah. This is gaining attention because it's just so incredibly outrageous. Everything from the response to the newspaper, like they're just trying to smear me. Well, yeah, smear what good name? You know, where'd you get, where did it come from? But it's so outrageous. It's sort of like the Trump story, a once-in-a-blue-moon story that comes along that's going to get a lot of attention. I don't see any big lessons coming out of it. So isn't one solution, so you're talking about news literacy, which we've talked about in this program a lot, as in training young people to recognize what's real news and what's not, which is challenged these days by AI. You know, if artificial intelligence can write a fraudulent story or visuals cannot be deciphered to tell what's true and what's not, which you really can't on a lot of visuals. We had the perfect story of that, the blending of what's real and what's storytelling that's acceptable and what's not with a billboard out on I-90. The Times Union has written about this, put up by students, and it was an anti-drunk driving message. It had baby's face and said, you know, this little baby is not going to have a good Christmas because... No, this baby carefully. died because it was before yeah. it was, he was one year old. One and year in old. fact, that was that was, was not no the... such baby, no such murder. And mm -hmm. the students at a local school did it as a campaign, very effective campaign, as it turned out. Just it wasn't truthful. So is that lie? Is it truth? Is it fiction? Is it something in between? What in that is acceptable? If they had been professionals, they'd be fired for putting out misinformation. But they're students who are inspired by it. And they're teachers who said, this was fine, this is a good idea. The parents so who said it was The parents fine. who said, yeah, that's a great idea. Put a fake dead baby on the yeah, billboard. No. So we're talking about journalists trying to cover news. It's much deeper than that. Mm -hmm. It's a character issue, which goes kind of beyond the can of journalist fix. But because credibility matters so little, because... Well, let's look at it from the macro scale. We had Sean Hannity, the revelation from his testimony for the January 6th committee about not believing, it turns out, what was being said on his own program, which mm -hmm. he pushed out there, the notion that Donald Trump's election was distorted, that there were lies. Hannity now says, I did not believe it for one second, which is what he said under oath, yet he presented it to his viewers over and over again. So the cynical hosts on Fox News know that they are presenting lies and they don't care because it's good for the profits, right? Right. So, you know, to the point that, kind of the broader point that, again, Alan was trying to make last week by asking us if we had ever worked with liars. No, I never had a reporter who I worked with who was intentionally distorting the facts. But I see it on a national scale. We see it at Fox. And that loss of credibility, the fact that people don't care about it, that they lap it up, in fact, on Fox, is probably then in some way affecting the atmosphere in which these students now produce what is an untrue advertisement for the billboard. 
Now, Fox's defense, not that I agree with it, but their defense is that whatever Sidney Powell was saying was interesting or was news because she was saying it. She was a representative of Donald Trump, and that, that was why they gave her so much airtime. But other networks did not give her any airtime. I think they fairly strongly limited her coverage. The other thing is the tone in which Hannity interviewed her. It was not questioning or aggressive. It was more welcoming and beneficial. And again, the network is saying they were just trying to report the news, but we make decisions all the time about what news we actually report. It's a hundred decisions, a thousand decisions a day. And what you're going to put out there is especially important when you're a big network, when you have very limited time. We talk about it often in this show that it's not the responsibility of journalists to just throw stuff out there and say, you decide. Our responsibility is really to try to give people a sense of the truth. So giving people a sense of the truth would involve, in this case, involving Sidney Powell, the woman who was Donald Trump's lawyer, what would be giving people the truth would be to question her aggressively or not even to air her when you really know without a doubt that she was not telling the truth, that it was just outrageous, this notion of stealing the election from Donald Trump. By the way, I misspoke. This was not revealed by the January 6th committee. It was the lawsuit where Dominion Voting Systems uh, now has a strong libel case uh-huh. against Fox News. Yeah, Donald Trump did that a lot. He would say something like, well, I'm just asking the question. Yeah. Tucker Cla- Carlson does that, yeah, too, t- Yeah, when he's spewing his racist propaganda conspiracies. Yeah, and the people listening don't understand what they're being manipulated, and it's an effective way of manipulating people. Absolutely. If you're just joining us, this is The Media Project from Northeast Public Radio. That's Judy Patrick, Rosemary Armeo, and I'm Rex Smith. You can send your thoughts, media at wamc.org, media at wamc.org, and we will pay attention to what you have to say, and perhaps we'll be able to make some use of it. You know, one of the solutions might be, in fact, for us to get young people better trained But young people who know how to use TikTok, for example, to do journalism, because if that is, as it seems, the growing powerful vehicle for reaching people under age 24, journalism should be there. And there is a little bit of that going on. Journalism is beginning to learn how to use the short video format of TikTok but not very much, nor is there a lot of journalism on some of the other social platforms other than Twitter, which is problematic. (laughs) Forget about that, yeah. Yeah. I wonder these get extolled because journalists grasp at anything that says, yeah, this will save us, this is what we should do, this will make us relevant. So now it's the new hot flavor is this news on TikTok. Have you looked at it? I mean, maybe it's because I'm a dinosaur, but some pretty young thing doing her eyebrows, stopping with curling iron in hand, talking about communism and how it's evolved in China for two seconds and then going back to curling her eyelashes, doesn't do it to me as a news replacement for what we're talking about. The loss of big metros doing investigation and deep local reporting. It's candy. Yeah, and at this point, there's a move in by Republicans to ban TikTok from people's uh, phones. It's not a bad idea. (laughs) I'm not in favor of government banning, but that is problematic. It's run by the Chinese. It's absolutely addictive. It's capturing all the eyes of Do we know what it's doing? I think it's not bad to take a look at it. It's a very good idea to take a look at it. The FCC is demanding it. Actually, some members of the FCC are now saying it. And, And one solution might be for the federal government to insist that TikTok be broken up, that in effect, Chinese ownership of it be split apart from Mm -hmm. any capacity to influence it. And there's history of that in this country. The government does bust up monopolies that have undue influence. Unless they're Apple. 
Yeah. <laughs> or, or, you know, we really need to talk about the digital platforms and what government regulations there are. Although I hate the idea that anyone would ever think that they need to bust up big newspaper conglomerates. Maybe it's bad for it to be all centralized in one big newspaper. You don't see that anymore, but there was a time when that happened. Well, Gannett, for example, owns, what is it, half the dailies in the country Break now? it up. And Sinclair, yeah. yeah you can't think of yeah. good examples of these big conglomerates. Why should they not be broken up? Now, even podcasts. We have an interesting article in front of us about the conglomerate on podcasts, Liberty Media, which is owned by John Malone, who's a major right-wing donor. John Malone has been a force in cable ownership for years. Now it turns out that he owns the company that owns Sirius XM satellite radio, internet radio Pandora, owns Stitcher, Spotify. It's really quite an amazing array of stuff. Crooked Media, Many different things are owned, actually, by Liberty, which is owned by John Malone. And this is the kind of power that if you have a single entity, there is some question as to whether John Malone might have been the guy personally who was behind the firing of the CNN media correspondent. Uh, Brian Seltzer. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So there is a question, and this is something that, again, the, the Justice Department ought to be taking a look at to see if this sort of uh, monopoly or duopoly is, in fact, influencing podcasts, which are right now, that is, speaking of Flavor of the Month, that is the hottest way to get information. It is, but it seems like everybody in the world has a podcast. Yeah. You know, two years ago, it was fairly easy to choose which podcast you were going to listen to, but now everybody... This happened to blogs, too, if you remember. Then everybody in the world had a blog, and each had four readers each, maybe. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And sometimes there is value in scale. I think, uh, for example, we have an example recently of Cox Media Group, which owns a bunch of TV stations around the country, which has used that power to localize the national story of a real estate company that is deceiving customers. So that is basically investigative work on television, imagine that, and they've added senior-level reporters and producers to do that kind of work offering basically local TV consumers an opportunity to get investigative reporting that their own local stations themselves wouldn't be able to afford. Right? So right. that's good. Yeah, it's a great example of uh, taking a, an issue that you can localize. That's what, if you if you ever talk to a, an editor of a small local newspaper, all they want to localize. They want to get a local person in the story. They want to make it relevant to their readers. Maybe you can take an issue like that. And it can happen at the state level. You can talk about, I don't know, sand piles or water pollution or infrastructure upgrades and have somebody in Albany doing the investigative work and farming it out so that the localities can make it relevant to their readers. The thing is, it takes a lot of work centralizing it, and it takes us a really strong editor. Yeah, we did that at the Times Union when I was the editor uh, some years ago. We did a series on school lunches, the problems of nutrition and affordability and so on. This is before school lunch was readily available for free to more students. But we looked at the nutritional aspect of school lunches and then distributed it to Hearst Papers around the country who were able to localize it. And we got a big, great national award for that very nice medal. And the result was better journalism delivered locally because it had been localized, but you still have to have the local reporters there to do the local element of that national investigation. And that is still imperiled these days. So one more thought before we go, and that has to do with the journalists being harassed by 
many people who considered a badge of honor to do that for journalism, and many people are starting to push back. There is a great problem, and this is just finally beginning to emerge. You know, we've had a lot of reporters over the years who have had local officials complain about them, and then ordinary citizens who get their phone numbers or their email addresses and basically try to make their life miserable. Uh, This is yet another reason why people leave journalism. The vitriol of what a local reporter often confronts is just astonishing. We used to say, oh, well, that's just part of it. You have to get over it. You have to have tough skin to be a reporter. But it is very dangerous these days in an environment in which politicians don't put any curbs on their supporters and their harassment of the media. It's, it's certainly a problem, especially social media has made it far worse. There's digital stalkers, especially of female journalists. I, we, we, we encountered that. You know, I used to, as an editor, you would occasionally get an anonymous letter accusing one of your reporters of, you know, doing something untoward. And, and you check it out and it wasn't true or, you know, just circulating rumors about them. But now with social media, it's far more more dangerous out there. And it's not just words. You will find people parked outside, you know, their house. Editors have to really be careful to make sure the reporters or the photographers out in the street tell them what's happening. And don't try to just tough it out and, and take the abuse because there's a lot of it out there. And remember the January 6th footage where you saw the people trashing the CNN equipment and the AP equipment. And I think they were even setting fire to it. It was very disturbing. I worked for several decades in places where harassment and worse, maiming and and beating of journalists was accepted practice. And I was always amazed and awed that there were reporters still willing to take that risk, that they considered the work important enough to put their lives and their safety on the line. They were not wimps. And that's what makes me, I, I hate talking about this stuff because the impulse is to, oh, we won't do those kinds of stories or we'll back away if there's a threat. And that's exactly what you can't do. But there are things that journalists can do to protect themselves. One of them is, like you say, we would fire a reporter who got a threat who did not immediately come and alert everybody else that you could take steps. You don't just tough it out and act like a hero. You're not. You're working as part of an organization trying to get out information that is not welcomed in certain circles. So you're a Report threats and you work together and you do interviews in public places and you publish a lot of stuff because that's what they're trying to do is to keep you from publishing. So you publish more, not less. All right. On that point, we will have to let it go. We are out of time for this edition of The Media Project. I'm Rex Smith from the Upstate American. We have Judy Patrick and Rosemary Armeo. With gratitude to our producer, David Gustina, and special thanks to you folks for joining us this week once again on The Media Project. At a living wage, they joined with other actors upon a living stage. Now newspapermen are such interesting people. When they know they've got a people's fight to wage, tingling-ling newspaper guild, got a free new world to build, meet the people, that's a thrill, all together fits the... The Media Project is a production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio. Rex Smith is the former editor of the Times Union and Substack columnist. Judy Patrick is the vice president for editorial development for the New York Press Association, and Rosemary Mayo is an investigative journalist and adjunct professor at RPI. Listen to The Media Project online anytime at WAMC wamc.org or schedule a podcast wherever you get your podcasts or just download the wamc app for your iphone or android at the play store today thanks for listening readers and to big shots for their dough now publishers are such interesting people 
It could be prostitution, I don't know. Ting-a-ling-a-ling, circulation, ting-a-ling-a-ling, advertising, get those readers, get that payoff. What a headache, what a mess. Oh, publishers are such interesting people. Let's give free cheers for freedom of the press. 